Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or of course Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes, you're welcome to show number 928 and a special show for you this week all about Web3, which we are hearing left, right and centre. Web1 was all about static websites and just getting online. Web2 then was all about interactivity and social media. Web 3 is going to be about getting away from centralised resources such as the Facebook or the Google that we know today and becoming more decentralised or platforms even becoming anonymous. But what are the technologies that are bringing all of this together? Kara O'Connell is a Fujitsu distinguished engineer with particular interest in evaluating how technologies change the way we use and get value from data. She's responsible for the delivery of digital transformation and cybersecurity solutions, as well as those based on Oracle, ServiceNow and more. This week, Kara tells Niall Kitson and ourselves all we need to know about Web3 for now. The term Web 2.0 is pretty antiquated at this stage. I mean, we've been using it since, what, 2005, 2007, pretty much uh, as soon as technologies like, you know, Ajax, HTML5 uh, have been with us, not to mention codecs like H.264 and programming languages like C that have just become sort of the cornerstone of things that we're used to, whether it's, you know, content we make and share ourselves or apps that we develop ourselves and, you know, either for fun or to try and make some money out of. So what is Web3 and what separates us, what separates it from what we already understand of the web? Yeah, thanks. So Web3 is a really interesting phenomenon because it it changes how we interact with everything that's about the internet. Web2.0 is very about... Um, creators being able to push content up there. So that means putting a video on YouTube, putting a post on Insta or some writing a tweet and so on. So Web 2.0 is about um, putting creations up there, but it's very controlled by kind of big corporate companies like YouTube, like like Meta and so on, like Twitter. And um, what we find then is that data can be used and then uh, trend analysis and so on so that we can get uh, ads popping up on our timelines and so on for certain products because they're you know our data is being looked at in that way but web3 is different so it's one of the big areas on it is decentralization so not you're having your data more in your own control and not in the control of um, some big corporations um, why that's important is that we we want people to feel like more, they're more in control of their data and they have the ability to know you know, how it's been used and choose how it's been used. So it's kind of a philosophy in it in itself to <clears throat> change to more um, of a, a decentralized way. Now, there are some technologies that are underpinning it and you'll hear terms like crypto, like NFT, blockchain, metaverse and so on. And it, we're at a time where these things are starting to flourish more and more. But you will be surprised that the idea of Web 3.0 got coined around 2006. So it's not new. 
was coined by a journalist and then picked up by Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Um, and the idea, you know, has taken some time to come to fruition. And the idea with, with it is that the data that's used in this new version of the internet or Web 3.0 is supposed to be much more readable as well by machines. So you get technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning and so so on coming on as well. So that means that um, the experiences that you'll have in Web 3.0 are also much more personalized because you've got those machines running um, as well, but in a decentralized way. So you don't have to, you know, just a few companies controlling all the data. So there's a lot going on in Web 3.0. In some ways, it's still early stage. A lot of companies are still engaged on the Web 2.0 idea where they've got social media channels for interacting with their consumers and so on. Um, people are interacting with social media all day, every day. Um, so Web 2.0 is very firmly here at the moment, but we're at the, we're at the right stage now for companies starting to plan their journey into Web 3.0. That's a really interesting point that you raised there about personalization, because one of the tenets of uh, Web 2.0 is the idea that through your own personal data, we can share or, you know, uh, push advertising or content that's more relevant to you, which is proven to be fairly destructive, uh, ultimately. Uh, Web3, it's kind of the same same kind of goal of personalization, but with uh, this different ideology behind it. So uh, in looking at the removal of that sort of, you know, platform hegemony, um, what are the alternatives going to be? I mean, what does social media look like in a Web3 world? So what we should be seeing in Web3 is that social media is much more about controlled and choice-driven experiences. So you are controlling what communities you interact with. You're controlling what kind of advertising you want to see and so on. So the, the philosophy around it is, much more about user-controlled experiences. Um, I think it's going to be interesting when we think of Web3, a big part of it is the community-driven side. So you're not really just joining one big platform, you're choosing which you know, which platform of maybe numerous platforms you're going to join. Um, so I don't th think you'll see the big consolidation onto a few big platforms like we have today in you know Twitter and Instagram and, and so on. Um, and one of the things will be, you know, when you were in social media, will we be able to interact with businesses and um, services and so on and be able to pay them directly within the social media platform? So um, let's say you consume some content or you had a good services experience with a business and you want to tip them through their social media channel and so on. One of the kind of philosophy, one of the ideas really between social media and Web 3.0 is that you'd be able to make a payment to a business directly through that without having an intermediary. And that's one of the ways crypto is going to play into social media in the future, being able to make payments through that mechanism. Um, crypto really seems to be a, a, another sort of tentpole uh, technology when it comes to Web3 because the attraction, uh, as we know, is that it's it's generally unregulated. Uh, it's a decentralized currency system. Uh, and I guess that makes it sort of the, uh, the currency of choice. So 
is this, uh, how else are we going to see crypto be integrated into people's lives? Is it going to be a case like, you know, say an, a, an app like Revolut where you manage your balance and there's also a little tab there for your crypto? Uh, is this the kind of future we're going to be seeing? Oh, yeah. It, look, it's a really, really fascinating world and there are lots of aspects to it. So let's take Revolut, which probably one in four or one in five Irish people have a Revolut account. There is a crypto tab on it and you're able to buy from quite a range of cryptocurrencies on it. So people start getting used to buying Bitcoin, Solana, Ethereum, whatever. Um, and that's because Revolut has a connection or an integration to the Coinbase exchange and maybe one or two others. So Revolut have a mechanism to buy crypto on behalf of their customers. But there's about 10,000 cryptocurrencies in existence at the moment. So people in the finance industry are, you know, very well used to, let's say, speculating on different financial currencies and so on. So they'd be looking at them to kind of go as, as crypto and an asset class to invest in. And we know there's a volatility there, which is potential for gains and also losses, of course. Um, but you could see crypto pop up in other areas like um, crypto coins being minted for a certain service or a certain region to use so that you know, it could only be spent on services in that location, for example. It's really, really wide. Um, one of the decentralized ideas, I guess, in the future is that your cryptocurrency of choice, it would be used to pay for services and solutions and what it products across a whole range of different platforms. So the integration or the federation between different um, social media services or products and services or metaverse solutions in the future will need to be there so that you can have some Bitcoin, for example, and you can pay for, you can, let's say, tip a hairdresser on one platform and pay for a music experience on another platform. So all that interoperability will need to be built in the future. Um, so, you know, crypto has a, a lot a lot of things going for it. And I think there's a lot of things for people to learn with crypto. Like, which ones would you put your money into? How much should you invest, if anything? Um, how to secure it? How to make sure no one else gets their hands on it? Um, how to access it? How to move it around? How to use it to pay for things? how to convert it back to normal currencies as we'd understand them, like euros and dollars and pounds. Um, yeah, crypto is a, I sometimes describe it as a parallel universe and it is, it's um, another whole ecosystem to learn. That's that's a really interesting point because it, it does mean that in the same way that you have to uh, acquire, uh, you know, financial literacy, that crypto doesn't really fit into that that mold that you you have to learn a different set of uh, mental skills for appreciating uh, its values and its value system as well. Well, you do. So, for example, if you wanted to buy an NFT, and we'll we'll talk, we can talk about what NFTs are. So, you know, a little digital asset, you'd have to figure out what currencies, what cryptocurrencies are acceptable for buying that NFT in, and you'd have to get hold of some of those cryptocurrencies, no different to, you know, currency exchange if you're going on holiday somewhere um, and register on a platform where you could then spend that cryptocurrency on the NFT that you want to buy. So uh, we have got used to moving money around online. Um, we're used to it with our online banking apps. We're used to it with PayPal. We're used to it with Revolut and then 26 and others like that. So 
it's it is just another area to learn um but it it's not something you do overnight it, i think there's a definite process for getting up and running in this area you raise their NFTs or, or non-fungible tokens, which they've, they've become something, I don't want to say they're a fad, but they've certainly gained prominence in the media uh, over the last year or so. Um, just tell us a little bit about them and why we should care. Yeah. So non-fungible tokens are essentially a digital certificate to say you have some rights or some ownership um, for something. Quite often that is a digital something. So that could be a piece of artwork or a piece of music, for example, but it doesn't have to be something digital. Most of the NFT sales that you'll see today are for pictures, for example. So, for example, you'll see people who have one picture and they might have used some artificial intelligence to create a thousand versions of that picture. And they'll sell that a thousand pictures as, you know, a limited edition, one of a thousand, two of a thousand and so on. Um, you'll also see it used as a replacement for what we used to trade as player cards for sports people. Um, used to physical pieces of cardboard, you know, with the image and stats or whatever of a player. Now you can buy NFTs of players in different sports and, you know, trade them again, sell them on. But your marketplace now isn't just, let's say, your, your local gang, your local community and so on. Now your marketplace is people all over the world. You might, you know, lots of people might have used eBay in the past to buy different products and services. Well, you know, in the same way with NFTs, there are marketplaces like OpenSea where you can go to buy and to sell NFTs. And then what you do is with these marketplaces, you connect them with your digital wallet and your digital wallet is the thing that holds your cryptocurrency. So as well as um, having a physical wallet in your pocket, maybe with some credit cards and some banknotes, now you have a digital wallet as well that you need to look after with your cryptocurrencies in it and maybe a range of cryptocurrencies because you need to have the right currency to buy an NFT that you're interested in. So... Do you want to know more about the process for buying NFTs? Uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit more about uh, sort of the process involved. If I've decided I, I want to invest in uh, an image of a, a, an ape, as, as has been quite popular in, in recent months. Yeah, so um, unfortunately, you won't be able to do it directly through Revolut. So I want to dispel any, any notions about that. Um, there are a range of digital wallets that you will buy into. And essentially what you end up doing is linking them with your credit card and you select the cryptocurrency that you want to buy in. Um, and then you go onto a marketplace like OpenSea and you connect them with your digital wallet. So there's a connection kind of like eBay and PayPal. So same kind of concept. You pick the thing you want to buy and you see the value of it. And then you go to make a trade or you, you ask for the trade to happen and then you get you come across what's called a gas fee. And what I would liken this to is the early days of eBay when you were shocked sometimes by the postage cost. So here the gas fee is the, the bit of money you pay a miner to process your transaction. If they get that transaction through, they get the, the fee basically for processing it. And the, the fee for processing it varies by time of day and how busy all the miners are. Um, and how fast your transaction goes through depends on how much you're willing to pay. So 
anyone who's into networking is kind of like the latency involved. It can take time for your purchase to go through and you hope no one else makes that purchase before you. So no one gives them to you. So this is uh, very much the uh, the community purchase model, uh, just as in uh, as in regular cryptocurrency. So you're very you're reliant on the community to validate your uh, transaction. Absolutely, and it, it's all got a blockchain underneath. And what the blockchain does is it it's a distributed ledger ledger technology. And what it does is it writes that transaction into a block. It's called, and all those blocks come together and they form that chain. So. They're, they're just a whole new set of technologies underpinning Web3, essentially. Yeah, there, there is no getting away from the discussion uh, of blockchain and its importance. And its importance. It, it, is blockchain really sort of then the, the key to Web3? It's sort of the, the, fun, the founding uh, infrastructure, if you will, of it. It's definitely one of them. So one of the things that we don't see a lot of commentary on is that there are private and public blockchains. So blockchains initially were conceived more with the idea of being, a, you know, private blockchains between, let's say, a range of suppliers in the supply chain so that the status of, you know, a purchase of an item could be um, checked at all points along along the chain. And, and when you write something to a blockchain, the, the data doesn't change. It's there forever. It has a permanence to it. But then the more open and public blockchains came along. And we see this in the big decentralized model where lots of miners can go and participate in the blockchain to try and be the ones to process the transactions and get the fees for processing them. So blockchain is a fundamental technology for kind of making the records of what's going on. Now, there's a another whole area of that, you know, is what happens if we ever want to delete a record in the future. Um, we don't think we have any standards around that. So that all has to come in in the future. But what blockchain does give you is a trust because the records can't be changed. Therefore, there's there's a proof that something did happen. There's a proof who owns what. There's a proof what stage, you know, something might be it in a transaction or in a supply chain and so on. Um, so blockchains are coming more and more um, into prominence. And... This is where you're going to see um, some work in, in coming years, you know, to see which blockchains become the most popular, which technologies, which platforms are the ones that are going to get most popular. Ethereum seems to be stretching out front at the moment, but it's not the only technology out there. So we'll, we'll see. Okay, so thus far we've talked about sort of ideology. We, we've talked about... Um, commerce, if you will. Uh, let's move on to sort of the, the next plane of consciousness, if you will, the metaverse that has been uh, sort of promised by the company formerly known as, as Facebook, but also an idea that people have been primed to accept for, you know, almost 40 years of science fiction at this stage. So how close are we to actually becoming sort of a meta or virtual natives with our, you know, our uh, Vive headsets or um, uh, Oculus headsets and treating the metaverse as, you know, a legitimate marketplace of ideas. Yeah, if we're, we're in a really interesting time, right? So the metaverse is all about immersive experiences. So being, being in an environment, not being in like seeing things in 2D, but seeing them in 3D. 
Um, but you can, you know, there, so there will be some experiences which are on your mobile or your laptop or your PC screen, and they'll be managed through you roaming with your mouse and so on. And there will be others that are managed through virtual reality headsets. Now, there are various um, metaverse platforms out there that are customers and people are experimenting with, like Verbella, for, for example, is one that we're experimenting with. And essentially what you're trying, what you're starting to see now is the land grab for who is, which platforms are going to be prominent in metaverse. So in the last week or so, you'll have seen the metaverse standards framework um, start to evolve and Microsoft and NVIDIA and Epic and others are trying to define what standards there'd be in the metaverse, but not all big tech companies are in there. For example, Apple's not in there. So there's no kind of defined standard. And if there's no defined standard yet, that means the metaverses may not interoperate. And that's that's one thing. Um, but then will every experience need a metaverse? So there's um, some commentary around maybe there'll be a metaverse set up, let's say for a musical concert. So as well as a band traveling to lots of different cities to perform their music, will they also offer fans an immersive virtual reality or, you know, screen-based experience as well. Maybe it could be the equivalent of, you know, getting up up close and seeing the band up close, but not physically having to travel there. Um, will the same be done for lectures, for talks, you know, that you f could feel like you're sitting in the audience? Could it be done for retail shopping? So, for example, imagine if you didn't have to physically load stuff into your trolley, load it onto the belt or, you know, scan, load it into the car, go home, unpack it and so on. But you're doing a metaverse shopping experience where you can feel like you're browsing the aisles, do all your impulse shopping as well as get what's on your list. Um, but then you're adding it to a virtual cart and then you're clicking to pay out to pay at the same, all in the same process end to end. I could see that happening in retail experiences. And then you know, will brands want to set up a temporary metaverse to promote their latest offering? As with Web2 and the social media ideas, if an organization wants to keep a metaverse alive, they're going to have to put a metaverse team behind it to be updating it all the time, to keep the content fresh, to keep the updates look and feel and so on. So companies are going to have to grapple with you know, is this something we want? And do we want it short term or do we want it long term? But I guess the first thing is to get in and start experimenting and try and look at the use cases that you would be, you know, would see you should put time into. And it's important to stress that it's, it's an experiential space and not necessarily a narrative space, because I think when people see the virtual reality headsets, they assume that, you know, it's a gaming peripheral, you're going into a virtual environment for which there is a specific point or a specific goal. Um, not the case in, in the sort of the, the experiential uh, uh, space, if, if you will. Uh, that, that also will sort of take a little bit of tuning for, for a lot of people in the same that maybe, you know, crypto did with money, sort of the experiential element of the metaverse will be for people who would assume that technolo technology to be the sole preserve of gaming. Yeah, so the CEO of Crucible, um, who are a metaverse company, he described it as, you know, it's like the web is web development in the future will be built by gamers. So, you know, the, the kind of aesthetic look and feel 
use of it will be more like being in a game when you're doing going into these immersive experiences. Um, so there is that kind of idea. Um, but one of the things in the metaverse and, and indeed with any of the decentralized solutions is what happens if you're not enjoying the experience um, or the experience, you know, was misleading in some way. So if everything's decentralized, who do you complain to? Um, so there's a there's another concept in Web3, which is, you know, about the community kind of self-moderating or as, as I put it to someone recently, you know, it, it takes a village in this sphere, this whole Web3 sphere to kind of determine what are the behavioral norms, what's acceptable and, and what's not. So there's there's a lot of work, I think, in there. You know, you want to know that if you're advising a family member to, you know, participate in the web in a metaverse experience that they're going to really enjoy it and they're going to really benefit from it. And then you're going to want to make sure that whoever is creating that, you know, has the ability to keep it updated and live if it's something that you want on an ongoing basis. So I don't think we'll have metaverses for everything. I think they'll be in specific um, categories, you know, that, and, you know, that's why I think it, it's a good time to start experimenting with, with the technology and see how you'd like to use it. One of the last things that we'll talk about is the sort of one of the applications of AI, uh, rapidly uh, growing technology around us, uh, thankfully getting more accurate with every subsequent uh, generation. And to tie that in to uh, the metaverse, the idea of digital humans. Now, again, sort of mapping on from that gaming space, uh, if you will, not a, an unusual idea. However, the, uh, the application and the development of digital humans, whether it's in the form of, you know, a, an avatar for yourself or maybe something that has been generated by, by AI uh, are also sort of cornerstones of that of that Web3 experience. So how exactly will that work out, particularly the, the digital human element? Yeah, so um, we... We know a little bit, a little bit about creating avatars for ourselves, I guess, on some of the, our phones now, where you can have an image, or you know, I like my image on Snapchat because you know it looks exactly like me. But <laughs> in digital humans, it goes much more than you know, selecting a hair color, eye color, and and so on. It's about um, getting actually very realistic to the point that you're not quite sure if you're looking at a human picture, like a real picture, or if you're looking at an AI generated picture. So for example, there is a website called Which Face is Real? <laughs> um, because some of the pictures generated by AI are that close to real pictures now, and it's actually really hard to determine what is real. So there are negative connotations to this, and there are also some good ones. So Let's quickly talk on the negative side and then we'll we'll go towards the positive. On the negative side, you need to be sure who you're dealing with, what you're dealing with, and are they authentic? Because just as AI can be used to generate um, images, it can be used to imitate voice. So we want to be sure that if we're talking to someone, we're talking to the authentic person. So that is lots of potential for going down a route that no one would like. So that's that's one thing that we'll have to ensure that there's trust, and that's where blockchain might come in. Um, on the positive side, though, for digital humans, 
wouldn't it be nice to think that in customer experience scenarios, for example, rather than just having a chatbot that, you know, write text, text in what's your little query, try and reframe it so you get the right answer back. But maybe that you had a, a virtual person who looked maybe quite authentic and um, being your person. So let's say different customers might want to have different customer service agents. So your customer service agent is always, let's say Barbara, I don't know, just picking a name. Um, and, you know, Barbara's always there answering their query. But in behind, you know, of course, there's an AI-driven engine searching knowledge bases and using the power of Semantic Web as that develops to pull down, you know, proper authentic, the proper, you know, thought out answers to the query that someone has. So you might see quite a lot of application of digital humans in the customer service space. And you could have different digital humans for each customer you're trying to serve. And that could be quite interesting. So that seems to be one of the um, main use cases that's going to drive them in, in the start. I suppose the, the opposite end of that, sorry, I suppose the opposite end of that is once again, being able to recognize the benefits of something, but also introducing a certain distance as well. Because uh, I know when a lot of people deal with chatbots, they instantly don't think there's a human on the other end of the interface. And, and actually, sometimes there is. Uh, similarly, with a digital human, people might uh, be sort of engaging with it and think that, you know, you are looking at a photo representation. Uh, but uh, of, of course, the chances are that, that you're not. So well, once again, a, a recalibration uh, most likely required on the part of the user. Yeah, but maybe, you know, because maybe organizations will be encouraged to have some standards that says, I don't know, this is not a real person. <laughs> you know, maybe there'll be a little sign <laughs> beside it that says, this is not real. <laughs> yeah. So so we don't know. it. That's where I think industry will have to self-moderate to pick some of these up and to make sure that, you know, we're being very transparent with when is it an AI, AI-driven solution versus when you're talking to a real-life person. Lastly, I think that is kind of the paradox that's at the center of Web3 is the idea of breaking free from you know, hegemonous platforms that, that have come to sort of own the web as we know it, to move towards a model of self-regulation when, in fact, that ideology could be applied to these very large platforms in the first place. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a whole sense in this about, you know, regulation by community. So communities, um, online communities determining, you know, what is acceptable and what's the way to go. So that concept is already there um, in this. So I would hope that that continues. Um, and I think we must maintain curiosity. So it's, as these technologies develop, and they'll be developing for some years yet, you know, that we question and we, we understand the benefits, but we also, you know, make sure that if there are any risky areas that we design them out or we make it clear, you know, where there, where there are risks, just to help educate people same way we have always with technology. 
And that was Cara O'Carroll, Fujitsu Distinguished Engineer, chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more with our website techcentral.ie. And of course, you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.